whether we are a young man or a young lady, an old man or an old lady, it is grace that has brought us safe thus far, and grace will see us home. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. Last Sunday morning, we began a new series of studies in the New Testament book of Titus. So if you would turn with me, please, to Titus chapter 2 this morning, we're reading verses 1 through 9, and you'll find it on page 1858, 1858 of the Church Bible. The Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, his good and close friend. He's writing around the year A.D. 68. Titus is on the island of Crete, and Paul has left him there to help encourage and teach and train the local congregations and the Christians on Crete. And so we break into Titus at chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine, Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then, they can train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands, so that no one will malign the Word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled in everything. Set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about you. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive." Amen, and we trust that the Lord will bless His reading, excuse me, this reading of His Holy Word to our hearts this morning. Back in November, I received a new smartphone. It's taken me several weeks, if not months, to get used to it. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It does all the normal things one would expect a smartphone to do. Each day, I can see my day at a glance. My schedule is there. My schedule for the week, I can see at a glance. I can see the month at a glance. I can see the entire year at a glance. I can download and watch movies. I can read entire books. I can text and email and Facebook, and it's so convenient. And the technology is sophisticated, to say the least. It has on it the ability to scan your eye. And what it means practically is this, that when I'm reading a document and my eye is moving up and down the page, because it's scanning my eye, the document moves up and down the page as well. 
And it means I don't have to use my finger because those fractions of a second that you might use could be useful later in the week. So it just moves up and down with, with my eye. And quite frankly, it's a little weird, so I've stopped using it. But nonetheless, it's there, and I'm fascinated by modern technology. This past Thursday, I picked up Time magazine, and they have an article not so much on a smartphone like this, but a smart home. And in essence, it says this, in 20 years' time, this is what homes are going to be like. Are they environmentally friendly? What technology will we use 20 years' time on a daily basis? The only thing that frustrated me as a pure Scotsman is this. I paid $5.99 and then discovered I could read it on my phone. <laughs> now, having said all of that, I started to think of the importance of and convenience of the digital world we live in. And I got to thinking back 20 years to 1994, how on earth did we possibly do anything without smartphones and a digital world? Now let's look the other way. In 2034, what technology will be in our hands then? What will our homes be like? But this morning, having painted that picture, I want to go a little deeper. Not so much what technology will we use, but what kind of people will we be? What will your children be like in 20 years? What will your parents be like in 20 years? What about grandparents and great-grandparents? What about children and great-grandchildren? Will they still live in Greenville? Or will they have moved to San Diego or Seattle, New Mexico, New England, Paris, Tokyo, Rome, Moscow? Where will they be? But much more important, what kind of people will they be? When Paul is writing to Titus, he's saying, Titus, I've left you on Crete to invest your time and energy and prayer into the lives of the people there in Crete, these small congregations who are living and vibrant and coming to fruition, those individuals whom the gospel has impacted and changed. What kind of people do you want them to be in 20 years' time? Titus, let me give you some priorities for investing in their lives. And all of that leads us to chapter 2, verse 1. And look at it with me again. When Paul writes, Titus, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. If you find yourself in a congregation on a Sunday morning, and the emphasis is on Jesus as a spectacular human being, the ideal example of life, the kind of person every one of us would want to know, compassionate, empathetic, a mentor, someone who's willing to get alongside and put his arm around you. If that's what the focus is in that congregation, please hear me, be careful. If perhaps the morning you are there, they're looking at the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And the teaching is this. Jesus was such a communicator. His presence was so dynamic that he impacted people's lives. And when the wee boy came forward with five loaves and two fish, 
he embarrassed the other adults who eventually went into their pocket and pulled out their own lunch and somewhat oh, grudgingly shared it around. That was the feeding of the 5,000. If that's what you're being taught, please be careful. If you're being taught in a local congregation that the death of Christ on the cross was nothing other than a political accident, that Jesus was unable to reconcile the tension and the difficulties between the Jewish Sanhedrin and the Roman authorities, and it was a political act of violence towards Jesus Himself. Please be careful. And let me explain why. Because Jesus was not simply the greatest human being of all time. He wasn't simply an example of how we should live. He wasn't simply the perfect individual. He was, in fact, God incarnate, who came into this world to transform us and renew us and bring us into a relationship with God in a unique way, a way that no one else could. He was God Almighty. And that is why at the feeding of the 5,000, when he took the loaves and the fish, he gave thanks to his Father. He broke it and broke it again and broke it again and again and again, and then passed it out. A supernatural work of God took place that morning. It wasn't about embarrassing people into bringing out their own lunch, but it was the power of God at work. And the Gospels are absolutely clear on that. And the miracle pointed to who he was. That was the point of the feeding of 5,000. It had nothing to do with embarrassing people into sharing their lunch. The death of Christ at Calvary was in order that Christ, by the love of God, might redeem a sinful humanity. That God laid on him who had no sin, sin for us. And He took our place, and He was guilty for us, and He died for our sin. It had nothing to do with political violence or tension between the Sanhedrin, for God, before the foundation of the world, set in plan His purpose for humanity, and it was climaxed in the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. That's why you need to be careful. That is why Paul is saying to Titus, Titus, teach sound doctrine. Teach the gospel. Hold on to the trustworthy message that has been handed on to you, the apostolic faith. That's why it's important to be careful. That's why when you focus on the gospel, you inevitably have a living, vibrant congregation who are radical in their expression of love to family and friends in their community. That's why we share in mission opportunities, because we believe that being a missional church comes from where? It comes from a relationship with Him. And if there is a spiritual income, the very natural thing is to have a spiritual outcome. Titus, if you are ever to invest in this generation of people in Crete, teach sound doctrine. Now, if he has given you the broad principle, he then becomes very 
specific. Look at it as he highlights a number of groups within the congregations in the island of Crete. And he begins, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in endurance. Now, some of you will be shocked to hear this and very surprised that sometimes, just occasionally, you will find an older man who is grumpy. <laughs> Isn't that hard to believe? Isn't that hard to believe? But it happens. In fact, for my birthday this year, my wife bought me a mug, and on it was Grumpy from the Seven Dwarfs. <laughs> and it had a picture of him, and then the text underneath was, within this grumpy body lies the heart of a hero. Wasn't that you're supposed to say, oh. I have to confess that my wife is a little suspicious when she cannot see me. It's not that I'm elsewhere in the house. When she can see me, she feels relaxed. When she can't see me, she thinks I'm up to things. And most of the time, she's right. Titus teach older men. Older men at times can be prone to being negative, critical, a little withdrawn. Didn't work like that in my day. Therefore, it cannot simply be right. What else does he say to older men? It's not about age. It's about attitude. Being stubborn, less teachable, resistant to change. Titus encouraged older men to be godly, Encourage them to model real and genuine and authentic faith. Model it for them. Mentor it for them. You be the first, Titus, to get alongside a younger man and put your arm around him. Tell him you're praying for him. You're there for him. Model it for him. Shake him by the hand. Thank him for who he is in Christ. And let them know that in years gone by, you've gone through similar experiences, and the Lord was faithful to you. Those moments when He spectacularly answered prayers, those days when your back was up against the wall, and you never thought you would be able to get out of it, and God wonderfully, graciously caught you up. Titus, teach your older men to model the faith for younger men. That's what's going on. And if he speaks to older men, he then goes on, likewise, teach your older women. Now, please notice what he says. Older women are to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good, and then they can train younger women. Now, symbolically, as I get to the edge here, I am now on thin ice. And I am thin ice in this passage because it's being addressed to older women. And allow me please to define an age when a lady becomes an older woman. <laughs> if you are 103 and above, you are officially an older woman. <laughs> Do you see what happened right there? That is pastoral skill. Right there you saw pastoral skill. Yeah. 
If I keep this up, I could be the next U.S. ambassador to the U.N. <laughs> Older women, don't slander. If you're in a group and someone becomes the focus of that conversation and that individual is not there, step back. Don't become involved. Don't seek to minimize or put down. Try to build into your life the principle that if an individual is not there, you will never say something negative about them. That's hard. That's tough. But that's what it means to be a radical follower of Christ, that your walk will equal your talk. Model it for younger women. That's what's being said right there on the page. Model it. Get alongside those younger women they're holding down a part-time job with three children under eight, pulling out their hair in frustration that they never seem to have enough time to get anything done, trying to run a household, look after husband and children, and all of the demands that come with being a younger lady. Older women, model it for them. Become a mentor. Show them the fruits of the Spirit on a daily basis. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Model it for them. Let them see that it is possible and that life will not always be this way. And then he becomes specific, not so much to the older men and the older ladies, but now he's saying to the younger women, love your husbands and your children. Be self-controlled. Be pure. Be busy where you can be. Younger Christian ladies, show the things of God in the day-to-day, mundane, routine things of life. Next-door neighbors, family, friends will watch your life before they will ever open the Word of God. They will be asking themselves, what is it they have? What is so attractive about their life? Is it just that they're clever and have it all together? Are they some kind of superwoman? No. Allow the teaching of the gospel to be seen in an attractive way in and through your life. With all of the demands, with all of the busyness, with all of the responsibilities you have, day by day, in the mundane and in the routine, allow them to see Christ at work in you. That's what Paul is saying right here. And then he moves on to younger men. Similarly, encourage the young men. Young men at times can be impetuous, rash, volatile, unrestrained in their behavior. Titus, get alongside them. Shape their ambition in their business. Help them to fashion their needs and their wants and their desires. Titus, teach your younger men. And then he moves on again. And he does to slaves. Oh, excuse me, I've just gone too quickly. He said, in your teaching, show integrity and seriousness and soundness of speech. I regularly get into trouble for not being serious enough. Now, 
both you and I know I have a very insightful, articulate, wonderful gift of humor. You know this, and I know this too. Thank you, Sandy. I had an amen from the choir there. But you have no earthly idea what I, in fact, am holding back. All the opportunities for humor in front of me, and I discipline myself and rigidly hold it back. But Paul is saying, Titus, be a teacher of integrity. Be serious when you need to be. Open up the Word of God. Speak often of Him. Point to Him. Enable others to see Him in all of His wonder and glory and majesty. Show Him up for holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty. Point to Him that sound doctrine. Highlight Him. Exalt Him. Lift Him up. Let others see who He is. That's what's going on in this passage. Titus, you must teach sound doctrine. And you may well be here this morning and saying, Richard, I agree. In fact, I couldn't agree more. But this morning I'm feeling the same way as I did last Sunday morning when you talked of holiness and what did that mean to be exposed to the holiness of God? And what did it mean when holiness set us apart? This morning I'm feeling similarly. You've held up this perfect individual who walks with the Lord day by day. This individual who would monitor and then mentor for others a living, dynamic faith. But Richard, I have to tell you, that individual is not me. I don't have the skill set to be that kind of individual. I don't have the natural ability or gifting to be like that. And if you are thinking along these lines this morning, please hear this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now you're beginning to understand the teaching of the apostle, because what he's saying is this. It's not about natural gifting. It's about supernatural enabling. That's the point. He's saying, Titus, you cannot do it on your own. You shouldn't expect to do it on your own. You can never pull yourself up by your own bootlaces. You simply cannot do it on your own. And notice what he says next. After speaking to slaves and encouraging them to make their walk equal their talk, he finishes that verse, verse 11, by saying, excuse me, verse 10, so that in every way you as a slave will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. And do they do it on their own strength? Do young men do it in their own strength? Old men, older women, younger women? No. Notice verse 11, and allow me to close by focusing there. And he writes, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, and it's grace that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. That's the point he's making. You cannot do it on your own, but when you get to the point that there is nowhere else to go and no progress can ever be made, 
then, and only then, when you utterly, willingly, gladly surrender yourself to the enabling and sustaining grace of God, then you're ready to move on in your walk with Him. That's the point of the passage. That's the point. It's not that we can do it on our own, but it's grace and grace alone that enables us. And if you're taking notes this morning, please write this down. It's when we trust in the invisibility and invincibility of grace that we are ready to go deeper. Let me say it again. When we are ready to trust gladly, fully, willingly in the invisibility and in the invincibility of grace, then we're ready to go deeper. Let me close with a quote from D.A. Carson, a very fine New Testament scholar. Donald Carson, thinking of the Christian's spiritual life, writes these words, we do not drift towards holiness. We drift towards compromise and call it self-tolerance. We drift towards disobedience, and we call it freedom. We drift towards spirituality and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and elude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. When I started this morning, I talked of a smartphone and our temptation, not in 20 years' time, but today is this. I tweet, I text, I share, I blog, therefore I am. We are not defined by the digital world we live in. We are defined by our walk with Christ, and we will walk with Him when we seek to study and apply His Word. We will walk with Him when that Word impacts us, and we seek to model and then mentor it for others. And whether we are a young man or a young lady, an old man or an old lady, it is grace that has brought us safe thus far, and grace will see us home. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this remarkable passage in Titus. Father, enable us and sustain us this week that we will not drift towards compromise and disobedience not towards self-control, not towards indiscipline and prayerlessness, deluding ourselves, but we will, by Your grace, be renewed and strengthened, be refreshed to walk with You day by day by day. Father, take us this week out from this place into Your world in order that we, limited as we are, will make 
the gospel attractive to those we know and to look at our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Do you need prayer for something or someone in your life? First Presbyterian Church offers a healing prayer service each Tuesday evening at 7 p.m. Our prayer ministers will quietly intercede for you or anyone you are representing who needs prayer for physical healing, emotional healing, or forgiveness. Our hope is that you will encounter Jesus, the healer and redeemer, in a deep and meaningful way.